0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samea Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington.
0: In this episode, we are going to return to a topic we tackled in the first official episode of Trade Talks, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. The fourth round of negotiations ended on October 17th, and it is pretty tense.
1: Tense indeed. Here is the US Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer.
2: NAFTA has resulted in a huge trade deficit for the United States, and has cost us tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs. Frankly, I am surprised and disappointed by the resistance to change from our negotiating partners.
0: In this episode, we are going to do three things. First, a NAFTA roundup, the negotiations are supposed to be secret, but some stuff has been made public. Second, we're going to step back from the politics and the haggling and ask just how connected are the NAFTA countries, really? How much American value is there embedded in Mexican exports?
1: Finally, we're going to experiment with the first ever Trade Talks Quickfire Round. Woohoo! So we asked on Twitter for suggestions from our listeners for things about NAFTA that we should cover, and we're going to try to include as many as we can. And also, each of us will have a fun fact to share. You can be the judge.
0: Oh, dear. Okay, but first, let's update listeners on how the talks are going Chad and I both watched the press conference, and and the tone was really striking. The trilateral statement mentioned conceptual differences between the parties. The, The news was that, whereas originally I think they had penciled in maybe seven rounds to happen before the end of this year, now there is only going to be one more round this year, and then the rest are going to be in the first quarter of 2018. There was a lot of chat about how maybe this deal was on its last legs, maybe Trump was on the brink of withdrawing from the deal. It doesn't look like that is immediately going to happen. But it also doesn't look like the Canadians and the Mexicans are gonna walk out. They want to make it look like Trump is the wrecking ball. They're not going to be the ones to scupper this. It's going to be the Americans. They want the blame to be on them. Listening to Canadian Foreign Minister Christian Freeland, the language was fairly telling
3: we've also seen a series of unconventional proposals in critical areas of the negotiations that make our work much more challenging. In rounds three and four, we have seen proposals that would turn back the clock on 23 years of predictability, openness, and collaboration under NAFTA. In some cases, these proposals run counter to WTO rules. This is troubling. We cannot forget that NAFTA has enabled the creation of sophisticated supply chains that allow our companies to make things together and sell them to the world. Nowhere is that more apparent than in our auto industry. Proposed new U.S. national content requirements would severely disrupt these supply chains, make North American producers and manufacturers less competitive relative to imports from outside the region, and put in jeopardy tens of thousands of jobs across North America. NAFTA has set a stable framework for trade and investment in North America for the past 23 years. With respect to proposals on enforceable dispute settlement, particularly Chapter 19, as Prime Minister Trudeau and I have said, an effective, transparent and enforceable dispute settlement mechanism is essential to NAFTA. Just as good fences make good neighbors, good dispute settlement systems make good trading
1: partners. So this latest round was when the most controversial, or as she put it, the unconventional proposals have been tabled. So that includes this thing in NAFTA called Chapter 19, which is supposed to be the fast way of dealing with disputes over when, say, the United States imposes anti-dumping duties on Canadian exports of softwood lumber. Ambassador Lighthizer wants to get rid of it.
0: The Canadians are saying no.
1: The United States this time apparently also made offers on what's called public procurement, or the ability to bid for U.S. government contracts.
0: That's part of the access that Canadian and Mexican businesses would like to the American, essentially, government money. The Canadians were not impressed by the American offer of extra access. They said it would give them and Mexico less access combined than America gave Bahrain.
1: The Americans also have proposed major changes to ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement.
0: U.S. businesses are not happy with this.
1: And the U.S. proposed a five-year sunset clause. So basically an expiration date on the NAFTA unless all of the countries could agree.
0: And excitingly for trade talks. So Luis Videgueray, who is the Mexican Secretary of Foreign Affairs, just came into The Economist and I asked him a couple of questions about the things that had come up in the negotiation. So first I asked him about this expiry clause.
2: Quite frankly, we don't see a need for a, a sunset clause because NAFTA already has a provision, and that's under Section 2205, that uh, the agreement can be, uh, can be revised at any time, and, and, and any of the three parties can withdraw from the agreement at any time. Uh, so that gives you all the flexibility that you need to review the agreement at, at, at any moment. A five-year clause can be constructive or it can be destructive. It depends on how it's structured, so we'll see what the, the actual proposal is and we'll react accordingly.
0: So maybe an acceptable version of a five-year sunset clause could be, you know, every five years the sides meet and reflect on the deal and then decide it's all okay. I get the impression that something that wouldn't be okay would be if, you know, maybe there was a congressional vote on it every five years. I think that would be much, much harder to stomach for the Mexicans and the Canadians. Of course, this relates to an earlier episode. So when we were talking to Nuno Lemao, we heard that certainty is a really, really important part of trade deals. The fact that a trade deal has extra certainty and businesses don't have to worry about the whole thing unraveling is a really important factor in boosting trade. So having this five-year expiry clause just undermines that.
1: That's right. And I think Minister Freeland pointed that out as well when she mentioned one of the benefits of the existing NAFTA had been 23 years of predictability. Okay. And then another major and perhaps the biggest one that we'll talk about here today is the U.S. proposal to really tighten the rules of origin on automobiles. Currently, there are 62.5% North American content for an automobile to receive the tariff benefits under the agreement. Ambassador Lighthizer wants to increase that to 85%. And then within that, require that 50% of the value of an automobile has to come from the United States itself.
0: I also asked the Mexican minister about that.
2: Uh, we're, we're open to discuss uh, changes in the regional content rules, the so-called rules of origin in, in the car industry. And uh, that's a matter of finding the right uh, transition periods and having a reasonable um, objective. Uh, th- that's, that's a discussion that we uh, don't oppose at all. Uh, and It could be actually good for, for the Mexican economy. Uh, it's a different matter of national content rules because that goes against the very nature of a trade agreement. And um, we've indicated already that's something that uh, we don't find acceptable as part of a trade. agreement.
0: It's not just the Mexicans who are worried by these content requirements. They've been described as madness by Canadian parts manufacturers. Again, American businesses are pushing back pretty hard against them. In the short run, if production doesn't satisfy the requirements, if they can't get 85% regional content in their cars, then... All these supply chains that cross borders are going to have to start involving tariffs. Companies are gonna have to just ignore the deal and trade outside of it. Ultimately, that will increase the cost of cars to consumers and make North American cars less competitive. This brings me on to the second segment of this episode, So it could be that the Trump administration doesn't think that disrupting these supply chains is a big problem. Why should they care if there isn't actually that much American value embedded in these cars that are crossing the border? Part of this controversy can be traced back to this op-ed in the Washington Post that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross wrote, the title being, these NAFTA rules are killing our jobs. So he thinks that there really isn't very much American content in North American cars, um, and he actually thinks that it's been falling over time. And I should flag at this point that thank you for pointing us towards this topic. So there's Joe Smith and Queen Anne's Revenge, great Twitter handles there, um, who wanted to hear more about this. So what's the story here, Chad?
1: In his op-ed, Wilbur Ross is suggesting that only 16% of the value of Mexican exports to the United States is actually American content, so American parts and components. And from that perspective, hey, what's the big deal about disrupting supply chains? There's not a lot of American content already embodied in these imports that we're getting from Mexico.
0: Could that be hiding differences between sectors? So you might think that maybe Mexican tomatoes wouldn't have much American content, but Mexican cars would have much more?
1: So that's definitely part of it. That number is an average across all sectors and in sectors like automobiles where we know supply chain linkages are much deeper we would expect that number to actually be much, much higher.
0: So Secretary Ross is relying on a specific database. In fact, it's one I've used, the Trade in Value Added Database. This is the joys of being a trade geek. So is there anything wrong with that data? What, what assumptions are embedded in that data?
1: So the data is good. This is a database put out by the OECD, but it does have limitations. And one of the limitations is it treats all of the inputs in a sector exactly the same. So it kind of takes the average. And that matters in a sector like automobiles, for example, where different companies that are sending their car exports from Mexico to different foreign sources, perhaps to Europe, perhaps to the United States, are actually using different combinations of inputs.
0: Okay, so supposing you're a car company and you're exporting cars to Europe and you have barely any American content, and then supposing you export cars to America and you have loads of American content, this database will average those out to maybe not very much, whereas actually there is a lot of American content in those cars going to America.
1: Yeah, that's right. So if you look at the data for the American cars assembled in Mexico and sent to the United States, like the Chevy Trax or the Lincoln MKZ, those have a lot of American content in them. Whereas some of the European cars, my favorite example is the Volkswagen Beetle that are also assembled in Mexico but then shipped to Germany, have very, very little American content in them. So there's wide differences across the different types of cars.
0: There was a new paper about this recently, wasn't there?
1: Yes. So there's a new paper by Alonso de Gortari at Harvard University. He gets around this problem or this limitation of the TIVA database by using a different database. So what he has is access to very, very detailed data on import and export shipments in and out of Mexico to be able to look into this question of how much American content is actually tied up in these Mexican goods, and he finds that dealing with this issue really, really matters. You end up with much higher estimates of the amount of American content in Mexican automobile shipments to the United States than you do in the study that Secretary Ross is referring to.
0: Can you put some numbers on that?
1: Yeah, so the study that the Department of Commerce did looking into this issue using the TIVA database for automobiles found that only 18% of the value of Mexican cars sent to the United States was U.S. value added, whereas the De Gortari study finds that nearly 40 percent of the value of a car is actually American value added. So it's more than double.
0: Okay, so it's possible that the Trump administration is underestimating grossly the fallout that this would have on American businesses and American profits. What are the implications of this for the bilateral trade deficit? So the Trump administration has made this huge song and dance about the fact that it really, really doesn't like the bilateral trade imbalance between Mexico and the U.S. Once you take into account these value added adjustments, how does that change?
1: So you raise the fundamental point. President Trump seems to only care about bilateral trade imbalances. The United States has a large bilateral trade imbalance with Mexico. The United States imports more from Mexico than it exports. President Trump also seems to tie this to the automobile trade. The United States imports a lot more cars to Mexico than it exports. But what those numbers miss entirely is this value added story. Those numbers calculate imports and exports in what are called gross flow terms. They ignore the fact that so much of the content of the imports into the United States from Mexico is American seats, engines, software, when you actually take all of that information into account, you look at the trade deficit number in value-added terms, it is much, much smaller. The estimates that I have seen suggest that the trade deficit, if measured in value-added terms with Mexico, is actually 30% smaller than the one that President Trump reports.
0: And just to check, is that based on this TIVA data that makes these averaging assumptions, or is that something else to?
1: So, that would even be just using the same TIVA database that Secretary Ross is referring to in his study.
0: That in some areas understates the amount of American value added in Mexican exports. Exactly. Okay, so one way to cut the bilateral trade deficit with Mexico by a third, measure it differently. Okay, so I, I hope that the main thing listeners would get from that discussion was that bilateral trade deficits are not as simple as they seem, but also there's huge disagreement on how to measure these trade flows correctly. Okay, final section, the questions facts section. So we are going to go through some questions that listeners and tweeters have sent in. The first is from Jim Cathy, who asks, why is the United States Trade Representative working so hard on the agricultural sector to satisfy one state, Florida, when every other agriculture producing state loves NAFTA? Chad, what is going on?
1: So I think what you're referring to here is sugar. In Florida, they have very powerful sugar lobbies. And this was one of the issues that was actually central to the original NAFTA negotiations back in the early 90s. The United States promised to Mexico that they would be able to export sugar into the American market. But of course, one of the first things that the United States did in response to the powerful sugar lobby was to go back on that promise and to not let Mexico export sugar to the United States. Sugar has been subject to lots and lots of disputes over the entire NAFTA period. And right now, Mexican sugar to the United States is under threat of anti-dumping duties Mexico has actually voluntarily agreed to restrain their exports into the US market. But these disputes have obviously complicated things. Disputes aren't the kinds of things that you want to have going on right as you're trying to renegotiate a trade deal.
0: I think the other thing that I'd add is that Robert Lighthizer has spoken about do no harm in the NAFTA negotiations, and it's clear that he has the interests of other agricultural producers in mind. He's aware that any fallout would affect those sectors. So to retaliate against America for not opening its market to Mexican sugar exports, Mexico closed off its market to the U.S. exports of high fructose corn syrup, which is this alternative to sugar. You put it into Coca-Cola, for example. That made U.S. corn growers even more upset, but it also meant that you've got a lot of corn syrup. Your sugar markets are just really distorted, essentially.
1: Okay, next question. From listener GTAP at Purdue University. And yes, some of our listeners are even acronyms. It's not just trade agreements. That's
0: nothing to be proud of, Chad.
1: (laughs) Okay. So the question from GTAP is, tell us about agriculture and food supply chains.
0: Okay. Well, more of a command than a question, but let's go for it. Okay. So the U.S., Canada, and Mexico each have vibrant agricultural sectors, and they grow different things. So American farmers grow a lot of corn and soybeans, and Mexican farmers will tell you that NAFTA has decimated their corn industry. Canada has a lot of wheat. Um, Mexico does avocados and peppers and lots of other vegetables and they thrive in the more tropical climate. So there's kind of differences in climate in and that, that encourages some of the production differences. But there's an interesting cross-border supply chain development that has been the market for beef and pork. Right, You grow a pepper and then you send it into America, whereas much of pork and beef starts as Mexican or Canadian-born pigs or cows, they live there for a while. Then the live animals, cattle, hogs, are shipped over the border to America and they're processed through the supply chain. In blunt terms, that's slaughterhouses. So they get killed and then exported around the world. But this is just an example of a very integrated sector that is North American rather than American or Mexican or Canadian.
1: So, my interesting fun fact on this one is when you look at the data on US imports of live cattle and hogs, so the key inputs into things like beef and pork. From the NAFTA countries, it's more than doubled during the NAFTA period, from $1.2 billion in 1994 to now more than $2.5 billion today.
0: We told you you'd get fun. This is fun. Fun Fun facts. Okay. So from listeners, Bobby Gulotti and Alton B.H. Worthington, another command, tell us about trucking services NAFTA dispute. Chad.
1: So this is another really interesting one. So as another promise made in the original NAFTA negotiations back in the early 90s, the United States told Mexican truckers, Mexican trucking services, that they would be allowed to drive their trucks around the American market. Now, they'd have to be safe. They'd have to comply with American standards for transportation and trucking. But what that meant is you wouldn't have to offload your avocados or peppers at the border off of a Mexican truck and onto an American truck to be able to then ship it into the American market. And that was going to lead to big efficiency gains and help reduce the cost of transportation. Now, the problem was the United States never lived up to that promise either. So Mexico filed the trade dispute under NAFTA. It won the legal case all the way back in 2001. But the United States refused for a very, very long time to comply. It only complied in 2011, and it actually didn't comply voluntarily. It had to be coerced.
0: Chad, have you just picked these questions as you know examples of, of promises that the US broke? You know, don't answer that. OK, so my fun fact is that, yeah, so this retaliation. So in 2009, really frustrated, fed up Mexico, seeks authorization to retaliate against America for not letting its truckers through it gets authorization and then the U.S. exports get hit by over $2 billion a year. That's a a large amount. And because it covered trade and services, it was under NAFTA. It wasn't at the World Trade Organization. But just for context, that would have been the second largest amount of authorized retaliation ever in the context of a World Trade Organization dispute. That's big. So you're Mexico, the Americans won't let your trucks through and you're told you can retaliate. So what do you choose? Well, this is the fun bit. They choose 89 different products, ham, apples, soup, and my favorite, American Christmas trees. So they're fairly strategic about it. They pick products that are in states that are connected to particularly influential politicians. And this probably has something to do with the fact that eventually the Americans say, fine, your truckers can come in.
1: That's exactly right. OK, next and last question from listeners Jeff Franzius and Sherry Shenhauser. So they want to know about how the NAFTA is ultimately going to affect this conflict between Boeing and Bombardier in this issue of Chapter 19.
0: So at this point, I should provide listeners with a quick update. So after we recorded last week's episode, and I would encourage everyone who hasn't to go back. After we recorded that episode, looking at the dispute between Boeing and Bombardier, there was this big news announcement. So Airbus, the European plane manufacturer, agreed to buy a 50.01% stake in Bombardier. And so now some of these planes are going to be assembled in America, not in Canada. And the question is, ooh, does this mean that they can just sidestep the tariffs? The answer at this point, you know, has this, has this whole kerfuffle just been ended? Uh, the answer is, well, it's too early to tell, but maybe not. And if these tariffs do go ahead, then they would be pretty massive, maybe around 300%. If they did go ahead, then Chapter 19 under NAFTA, which is the thing that is currently being fought over in the negotiations, that would be the thing that the Canadians would appeal to, to dispute that decision. I think this is this is an example of again a live issue a dispute that is making it even more obvious to the Canadians why they do really need this Chapter 19 these dispute settlement provisions in the NAFTA.
1: So in that dispute the plot thickens. Okay, my fun fact on this one comes from a statement that again Canada's foreign minister Christian Freeland made this week.
3: Uh, tel processus pour faire en sorte que les droits anti dumping et les droits compensateurs soient appliqués équitablement.
1: So my last fun fact is, le mot anti-dumping est le même en français qu'en anglais. Anti-dumping is ubiquitous. It's the same in French as it is in English. How awesome is that?
0: Uh, Again, the bar is low for awesome things okay and that's it we are out of time there were some questions that we didn't get a chance to answer but we'd love to answer them in future episodes so why the bilateral trade deficit doesn't matter what's this crazy business with canadian dairy and their supply management system that is super interesting watch this space we promise to come back to them in future episodes so now acknowledgements
1: I would like to give a shout out to Alex Panetta at the Canadian Press National News Agency for some really great reporting work, keeping us real time updated on the fourth round of NAFTA negotiations this past week. We'd also like to thank our listeners for all the great questions we received. In addition to those that we already answered, we got a lot from others as well. So let me thank Simon Lester, Sarah Babbage, Eric Shrimp, Mark Davidson, Hugo Bazikas, Jacob Stokes, Rafael Rojas Rodriguez, Michael Chang, Alex Nelepovich, and any others that we might have missed.
0: And finally, I would like to thank Luis Vidigaray for his insights into the Mexican negotiating position.
1: Okay, this week, since we pointed to a lot of topics that we covered in earlier episodes, I wanted to actually add a reference section. Now, all of these episodes, they're still there and they're free. So if you want more detail, go and have a listen. So if you want more on rules of origin, this chapter 19 for anti-dumping disputes, chapter 11 on investor state dispute settlement ISDS, go listen to episode one. If you want to hear more about President Trump's very different views about dispute settlement under trade deals, have a listen to episode four. If you want to hear more about the predictability gains of trade deals that Minister Freeland mentioned in reducing uncertainty, have a listen to episode six. And then finally, for more on the Bombardier-Boeing anti-dumping countervailing duty dispute, which could eventually turn into a NAFTA chapter 19 dispute, have a listen to episode seven.
0: That is all from Trade Talks. Please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it and tell your friends any trade negotiators you find wandering around looking stressed. And if you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samea Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks.
0: Because just one potential deal-breaking proposal was not enough.
1: That's even more lame than the ones that I normally do.
0: I mean... That's hard.